When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's a titular popish archbishop, and in particular, Peter Talbot, pretended archbishop of Dublin, may be commanded by proclamation forthwith to depart out of Ireland. His busy nature did not suffer him to continue long in that post. He was always telling the Queen some story or other, and the uneasiness she suffered in October 1662... Of this there is no doubt. Peter Talbot did not want art and cunning, but his vanity got the better of both in many instances. Barclay replied, Sir, you are in the right of it. Whereupon Talbot, rising up in great heat, with a face ingrained in anger, thundered out, Mentiris Barclay, mentiris impurentissime. It is well known that Oliver Plunkett told him that he had good grounds to believe that he had the reputation of meddling too much in affairs of state. Bad press followed Peter Talbot like the plague, not only during his own lifetime, but ever since. The words foolish, devious, crafty, troublesome, scheming, vain and mischievous were thrown at him unceasingly. But like the old pro that he was... He took them all in his stride and bounced irrepressibly back, giving as good as he got, until a combination of bad health and solitary confinement finally silenced him. Viewed from our exalted late 20th century position, Peter Talbot was a man of strange contradictions, a rare mixture of priest, ex-Jesuit, bishop and diplomat, a man whose loyalty to his king was only exceeded by his loyalty to Rome, a man for whom our idea of separatist nationalism did not exist, a noted theologian of his day, yet who lived in the most corrupt court of Europe, that of Restoration England. One of the best-known old English families, the Talbots had settled in Ireland when Henry IV appointed Sir John Talbot as viceroy and his brother William became Archbishop of Dublin. The same John Talbot, who became first Earl of Shrewsbury, was described by a contemporary writer as a second Herod, and died fighting as a mercenary in France at the age of 80. However, at the beginning of the 17th century, the religious troubles which have cursed this country since that time began to affect families like the Talbots, which, though still loyal to the English crown, had remained Roman Catholic. In 1614, six years before Peter Talbot's birth, his father had been imprisoned on account of his faith and was released only through the influence of the English Earl of Shrewsbury with James I. The Talbots lived at Maynooth in County Kildare. In fact, Talbot's sister Mary married John Dongan, whose family once owned what is now the well-known Castletown House. Peter Talbot was the sixth of eight sons, of whom Peter and John became Jesuits, Thomas a Franciscan, and perhaps the best one of all, Richard he suffered even a worse fate. He became the Earl of Tyrconnell and led James II's army at the Battle of the Boyne. At the age of 14, Peter was dispatched to Portugal to the Jesuit College at Coimbra, 
and following the usual thorough Jesuit education, was ordained in Rome 14 years later. Two months after being ordained, he defended publicly a theological thesis at the Roman College. His superior's opinion of him at this stage is worth noting, if only as a guide to his coming role in life. Peter Talbot is of good judgment, moderate experience. He is, however, rather excitable and suitable for teaching speculative matters. In normal times, Peter Talbot would probably have lived out his life in obscurity, teaching theology in a Jesuit seminary. However, back in Ireland, the 1641 rebellion, which was complemented in England by a civil war, was drawing to a close. The old English families, led by the Duke of Ormond, had reluctantly joined forces with their fellow religionists, the native Irish, and the execution of Charles I in England was followed by Cromwell's well-publicised visit to Ireland. And Talbot's brother Richard, then only 18, had fought a drawder and escaped disguised as a woman, which is probably the worst form of disguise one could adopt at the time. Cromwell's victory meant, of course, the confiscation of the Talbot lands, and the news undoubtedly reached Peter, now back teaching at Coimbra in Lisbon. Notwithstanding the danger, he obviously decided to return home at this time, and in 1651 he was sent to Ireland by his superiors, having been given greater ecclesiastical powers than his rank of priest entitled him, and with some obscure commission from the King of Portugal, probably a fact-finding mission about Cromwell's rule in Ireland. When Talbot arrived back, the Act of Settlement was being prepared, which was to settle the claims of the adventurers who, ten years earlier, had been promised land in Ireland in return for financial help during the war. Also included were those of Cromwell's soldiers, whose arrears and pay were due to be paid in a similar way. Now, many of the old English nobility, including their leader Ormond, had fled to Europe where they joined Charles II, who was seeking to regain his executed father's throne. For those who remained, the choices were not exactly wholesome. Transportation to the West Indies, transplantation to Connaught, or for the very lucky, confiscation of only half or three-quarters of their lambs. In a letter written at the time, Talbot recalled the mood and misery in Ireland. Groups of ten and twenty men and women each are sold as hired slaves for transportation to the West Indies. By now many have been dragged to death, especially highly distinguished noblemen and owners of large ancestral domains. Besides, thousands of the peasants are forcibly enlisted and sold off in groups of twenty. Throughout the entire land there is nothing to be seen or heard but crying, weeping, wringing of hands and beseeching. They revile Ormond, the king and his papal nuncio, and also themselves for ever having been born. May God console them. As far as I am concerned, orders have already gone out to have me detained. But as it is foreseeable that I am to die, as others also have, soon my superiors must arrange for my powers to be handed over. Now that it is possible for us, we should confess our sins and prepare ourselves for the next life. With his brother John, also a Jesuit, Peter remained in Ireland until the end of 1652, and in the following year we find him in Madrid, from where he was sent by the Spanish king back to London with letters to his ambassador to try and secure toleration for Roman Catholics, a mission which, to say the least, had little chance of success. However, 
Talbot was nothing if not an incurable optimist, and landed in London where under the aegis of the Spanish court he tried in vain even to get a meeting with Cromwell. However, he did come in contact with the Cavaliers in London, supporters of Charles, who, when they were not drinking, were engaged in fruitless attempts to organise a rebellion. And because of his Spanish connections, Talbot decided that he was in a position to help. And Charles II needed help. During his first years of exile, he had been living in France. But when Cardinal Mazarin concluded a treaty of friendship and commerce with the English Commonwealth, Charles was given a pension and told politely to move on within ten days. So he was willing to grasp at any straw when Talbot's offer came to mediate with Spain. And there was something to be gained for everyone. For Peter Talbot, the restoration of Charles would mean a relaxation of the penal laws against Roman Catholics, even more so if Charles himself became a Catholic and the Talbot estates would be regained. For Spain... It would mean support from Charles against France and for Charles, who was master of the art of playing off one side against the other, any advantage gained was better than none. So Peter Talbot, helped by his brother John, began to negotiate not only with Spain, but also with the Pope. And he flitted round the capitals of Europe, London, Madrid, Rome, Cologne and Brussels in a manner more befitting a latter-day Eurocrat than a 17th-century Jesuit. Now, despite the opposition of his order, who believed him to be engaging in political matters, Talbot continued with his one-man crusade. In December of 1655, he presented the Spanish terms to Charles. Now, these were an offer of a pension and a residence in the Spanish Netherlands in return for his abandonment of the French cause and his conversion to Catholicism. Charles, who became a Catholic only on his deathbed 30 years later, had sense enough to realise that any such move would be a permanent bar to his restoration. Nevertheless, he signed a secret treaty with Spain a few months later, agreeing to the proposals. Talbot's insistence on religious liberty did not endear him to either of Charles' chief ministers, the Duke of Ormond and Edward Hyde. Hyde, who later became Earl of Clarendon, was a strict Protestant and a grumbling authoritarian who called Talbot, among other things, the foolish father. James Butler, the great Duke of Ormond, however, was a more complex character. He was then the only Protestant in his family, having been reared in the household of Abbot, the Archbishop of Canterbury. By marrying his cousin Elizabeth Preston, he had joined together once more the huge Butler estates in Tipperary and Kilkenny, only to lose them in the rebellion. Now, in common with his fellow travellers, his only hope lay in the king's restoration, and while he disapproved of Talbot, he was more willing than Hyde to treat with him, as long as it was to the king's advantage. In the meantime, the number of Talbots serving the king was growing daily. Richard Talbot was arrested in London and tried by Cromwell, only to escape to the continent, and yet another brother, Thomas, was also in London. We get a fascinating glimpse of him through a letter written by one of the hundreds of spies who constantly sought out cavaliers and papists. My lord, here is one come hither, which goes in a dark stuff suit, with small black lace, black trimming, black silk carmines, a black hat, portly of uh, forty years or thereabouts, no beard. Under what name he goes, I know not, but I know him too well. 
He is a Franciscan friar. His name is Thomas Talbot, brother to Sir Robert Talbot, and to the Jesuit Peter Talbot that solicits for Charles Stuart in Rome. My cousin Johnson met him accidentally yesternight in King Street. I write Henry Moore, but my name is Blackwell. The secret treaty which Charles signed with Spain was an embarrassment to his brother James, who was then fighting for the French against Spain. After some wrangling, James had to leave his post, and when Talbot recommended him to the Spanish king, Philip IV, it was reported to Charles that Talbot had taken the side of James to his exclusion. Talbot had made a profound impression on James when, in 1657, he published a treatise called The Nature of Faith and Heresy. Now, it was Talbot's writings which led James to Catholicism, a move which, politically, did not prove to be very advantageous to him in the long run. Cromwell died in that year, and it's not surprising to learn that Talbot was back in London at the time and had walked in the funeral procession disguised as a peasant. Back in the emigre court, Hyde and Ormond were convincing Charles that Talbot was estranging James from him. In addition, his visits to London on behalf of Spain after Cromwell's death were taken by them as proof that negotiations between the Commonwealth and Spain were taking place. But as Talbot explained later, this was not so. Upon Cromwell's death, the divisions of his army and the submissions of his two sons, the Commonwealth Party was most likely to prevail, a thing the Spanish minister very much apprehended. Whereupon they sent me to London to observe and obstruct by their friends the Commonwealth men's design, but would not permit me to acquaint my own king with it, though altogether in his interest. I satisfied as many cavaliers in London as I thought I might trust with a secret, and assured them my endeavours were, and always should be, to serve the king, and that there should be no peace with the Commonwealth party. Talbot told a story to one of his future antagonists, the Franciscan Peter Walsh, who was going to see Ormond in Brussels. Ormond evidently believed him, but Hyde, who now had to deal with Thomas Talbot also, was not so impressed. I shall not be at all troubled at any good fortune Peter Talbot meets with. So he does the king's service, which is not yet in my power to believe he can do, or would, if he could. I am sure his brother Tom does all the villainous, foolish things here he can, and would set on foot all the extravagant demands which were made by the Irish that they were almost in full possession of their kingdom. When he is told that it becomes him not, while he is in the king's displeasure, to meddle in any business, he bids them not to trouble themselves. Does not his brother Peter manage all the king's affairs? But, meanwhile, the redoubtable Peter had already left London and, still in the service of Spain and acting on behalf of Charles, was on his way to the historic Treaty of the Pyrenees between France and Spain. Arriving at Fuentarabia, I went straight to the residence of the king's resident. I showed him all my papers, gave him an account of my designs, assured him that Don Luis Saro would give me credit, and he personally gave full satisfaction to the king of my fidelity and the king was pleased to receive me into his former grace and good opinion, as was my lord of Ormond, who then trusted me with his concerns in Spain. But while he was reconciled to the court of Charles, he had parted company with the Jesuit order. While he was in England, 
Charles and Ormond had persuaded the general of the Jesuits to order him to leave the country. When Father Richard Barton, the Provincial of England, and his socius, Father Grey, offered to me in London very charitably my choice of province and college of the society to live and teach in, provided I would depart suddenly out of England, I confess I was too positive in rejecting that offer, but they desiring me to take my time, I went to Peter Walsh, of whom I then had a good opinion to be advised by him, that neither desire of liberty or aversion from regular discipline enticed me to leave the society, but that I was in the circumstances wherein I might do God, the king, and all who depended on him more considerable service than I could in the society. He answered that I might leave without any scruple, and I left upon the aforesaid consideration. Now, after the Treaty of the Pyrenees, both France and Spain were still in favour of Charles' restoration, but would make no positive moves and Talbot was back in Spain still negotiating when suddenly, in May 1660, Charles was invited by the English Parliament to return as their king. His declaration on landing in England must have pleased Talbot. We do declare a liberty to tender consciences, and that no man shall be disquieted or called in question for differences of opinion in matters of religion which did not disturb the peace of the kingdom. But Charles was not a free agent, and after a brief honeymoon period, his relations with Parliament grew steadily worse. Now, there were many reasons for this. Charles wished to model his reign on that of his cousin, Louis XIV, and this move towards absolutism was something that Parliament would not allow. For their part, Parliament would on no account grant freedom of religion to Roman Catholics. It was this religious issue, aggravated by the conversion of James, Duke of York, that became a continuous bone of contention, reaching a crescendo 20 years later in the outrages of the Popish plot. And just as when in the following century Roman Catholicism became a symbol of nationalism in Ireland, so hatred of Rome became a symbol now of English nationalism. But there was also an economic reason. Many members of Parliament were in possession of abbey lands since the days of Henry VIII and Elizabeth. They still feared return to Roman Catholicism would mean for them the surrendering of those lands, and this fear was, in the case of the adventurers, extended to Ireland. Peter Talbot did not return to England until the following year, but in Ireland the reallocation of lands was taking place. Ormond, of course, was restored to his estates to the tune of almost a quarter of a million acres, while James, Duke of York, had to be content with a mere 118,000 acres. Some of the leading old English noblemen were also restored, including Talbot's brother, Sir Robert, and in conjunction with some of the clergy, they drew up a declaration of loyalty to the king called the Remonstrance. Its author was the Franciscan Peter Walsh, and was condemned in Rome as being anti-papal. The Remonstrance became a divisive force among the Irish during the rest of the decade, and Ormond kept Peter Walsh in his pay to prolong the controversy. Charles II took time off from his mistresses in that year to get married to Catherine of Braganza, sister of the King of Portugal, and a Catholic. And Peter Talbot, under his return, was appointed one of the Queen's chaplains, or almoners. However, owing to the opposition of both Hyde and the ambassador of Portugal, he was deprived of his post, 
This, at least, was Talbot's own version of what happened, although Hyde's account of his dismissal is certainly more colourful. His busy nature did not suffer him to continue long in that post. He was always telling the Queen some story or other, and the uneasiness she suffered in October 1662, upon Lady Castlemaine being put about her, was imputed in a good measure to his insinuations. There is a Spanish word frequently used by lovers in that country to their mistresses, and which likewise signifies an enchantress. Talbot unhappily had made use of this expression in his discourse, and the good queen, not having been used to the language of lovers, nor comprehending the true meaning of the word, presently imagined the Countess of Castlemaine to be a real sorceress. In consequence of this notion, and in great tenderness to the king's person, she cautioned him against the lady, and expressed her fears in such a manner that he was puzzled a good while to know her meaning. He inquired how she came to entertain so wrong a notion. She ascribed it to Peter Talbot, now being involved with the Duke of Buckingham in contriving to make mischief, which at that time distracted the court, and as a result... Talbot was ordered to depart the kingdom. Because he had left the Jesuit order, he now had no position in church or state, so he returned to Ireland, where his brother Richard was trying to obtain lands for the dispossessed. Now, owing to the controversy about the remonstrance, he came in contact again with Peter Walsh. But by now, they were on different sides, and the first round went decisively to Walsh and Ormond. According to Talbot, it happened when he showed Walsh a letter he'd got from the Internunzio in Brussels, offering him a bishopric in Ireland. Immediately on the sight of my letter, Walsh hurried to my Lord Ormond, informing him of his fears that the Talbots had a plot to assassinate his grace, whereupon ensured the imprisonment of three brothers, which gave occasion of murmur to many and laughter to most, to see such a noise made of what was found to be nothing else but the malice and plot of a knavish friar that endeavoured to destroy a whole family. What troubled me most in this intrigue was the loss of Sir Robert Talbot's estate, and a considerable sum for ten years' agency settled by Act of Parliament upon him. Peter and Thomas were put in prison, but were released by the King's warrant, and Peter returned to the court in London, where he denounced Walsh's new remonstrance and regained his position as almoner to the Queen. Little is heard of him for a few years, but he obviously survived both the plague and the Great Fire of London, which took place during the period. The one glimpse we get of him, however, comes from the diary of Samuel Pepys, with this reference dated July 1668. Thence, with W. Coventry, walked in the park together a good while, he being mighty kind to me and hear many stories of my Lord Chancellor's being heretofore made sport by Peter Talbot the priest in his story of the death of Cardinal Blur. Thence home to dinner, <laughs> and so to bed. There was a very good reason for Talbot's high spirits at this time. He had been conspiring with Lord Buckingham and others to have Ormond removed as Viceroy of Ireland, and he had written an anonymous pamphlet, probably at the behest of his brother Richard, which claimed that Ormond was making excessive profits in Ireland. Now, Charles went along with them part of the way, but as usual for his own reasons. He was now negotiating with Louis XIV, and in exchange for a huge sum of money, 
agreed, among other things, to declare himself a Catholic again as soon as it was feasible. And to show his good faith, he let it be known through Buckingham that he would be pleased if Peter Talbot were appointed as Archbishop of Dublin. Since the Restoration, because of Ormond's opposition, the few Catholic bishops who still remained led a precarious existence, spending most of their time in exile. Talbot's appointment was ratified by the Pope and he was consecrated bishop in Antwerp in May 1669 with Nicholas French, Bishop of Ferns, assisting. Meanwhile, Ormond had been recalled as viceroy, but against all expectations he was not replaced by Buckingham, but by the Presbyterian Roberts, who was described by Talbot as a respecter of conscience. At the time of Talbot's appointment, three other bishops were named, and when the exiled Archbishop of Armagh, Edmund O'Reilly, died, Talbot wrote to a well-known Irish theologian in Rome, Oliver Plunkett. I am writing to you in the fervent hope that you will agree to become agent for the Diocese of Dublin in the Roman court. I presume you are aware of the death of the dearly beloved Archbishop of Armagh last month in France. In the province of Armagh itself, there is such confusion that I suppose an Archbishop will soon be appointed. I have proposed three, Patrick Everard, Thomas Fitzsimons and Dr. Nugent. Everard is the best suited. However, Plunkett himself was appointed as Archbishop and Talbot commented. Certainly no one could be appointed better suited than Dr. Oliver Plunkett, whom I myself would have proposed in the first place, were it not he had written to me stating his desire not to enter for some years on the Irish mission. Plunkett, for his part, held Talbot in high regard, especially for his work against the Remonstrants, and when he passed through London on his way to Ireland, he commented, Here the cold is so intense that the wine of Spain was frozen in my chalice. For many years they have not experienced so rigid a season. A heavy fall of snow succeeded the ice, so that it is morally impossible to travel till this cold shall have passed. I have no desire, however, to remain in London, knowing the intention of the court. The adherence of Walsh, or rather Walsh himself, sends to some of the ministers of court anonymous letters, full of falsehoods about my presence here. But their malignity is known, and they themselves are despised. A letter was written to the king stating that Father Howard concealed three hundred priests in the royal palace who made their rounds every night, seeking to make proselytes for the Pope. These fabulous stories do this much good, that no credence is given to the writers, even when they tell a little truth. The Duke of Ormond will do his utmost to excite some storm against the clergy in order to molest Monsignor Talbot, Archbishop of Dublin, for whom he entertains a mortal hatred. However, Plunkett was not long in Ireland when differences arose between himself and Talbot. The principal reason was the different attitudes that each man had towards his appointment. Talbot, because of his long-standing proximity to the court and to the internuncio, regarded himself as the chief spokesman of the Irish clergy. He still hoped for the conversion of the king and the re-establishment of the Catholic faith throughout Britain and Ireland. Plunkett, on the other hand, regarded his appointment mainly as a pastoral one. He was aware of many irregularities in the church in Ireland, 
and was determined to correct abuses and reorganize its structure. As Archbishop of Armagh, he regarded himself as primate of Ireland. However, coming from the rarefied atmosphere of a Roman college, Plunkett was politically naive and, without realizing it, was undoubtedly used by the opponents of the Talbots in Ireland. So their first meeting was not altogether a harmonious one. As Archbishop of Dublin, your place is in your diocese. As Archbishop of Armagh, your place is in yours. As Archbishop of Armagh and Primate of Ireland, my jurisdiction reaches into each and every diocese. The Archbishop of Dublin, principal city of Ireland, has more claim to the primacy than Armagh. The primacy of Armagh has been acknowledged for centuries. Not acknowledged. Claimed. My brief even testifies to the fact, containing the words... Totius Hibernia Prime. Inserted by your friends in Rome? No. I am the principal bishop in Ireland. I have instructions by the king himself to oversee and check all of the clergy. A desire to see this authority in writing. I have not got it under the great seal. Well, then the little seal will serve purpose. In the meantime, I will act as primate according to custom and usage. I cannot comprehend this newly found arrogance of yours. Now, do not mistake zeal for arrogance. My desire for the primacy is not for the sake of title. I mean to use my office to unite all factions, to introduce reforms, to root out abuses, to put an end to scandals and quarrellings, and to reorganise our church, which has been in a disarray ever since Cromwell and even before. Be assured I am no less solicitous in this matter. Notwithstanding this... Talbot's own pride was hurt when Plunkett called together a national synod of clergy, including bishops and vicar generals, which was held in Dublin in the house of a Mr. Reynolds in Bridge Street, at the foot of the bridge in June 1670. The dispute as to which of them was primate began at this synod. Plunkett proposed that the decision be left to the assembled prelates, but Talbot chose to refer the decision to Rome. On the other hand... Talbot became influenced by Plunkett's pastoral zeal and made visitations to various parts of his diocese, including Wicklow, to, as he wrote, the great consolation of the poor people who came in great crowds, by the way, followed me night and day. In March 1672, Plunkett published a book, Jus Primitiale, which contained proofs of Armagh's claim to the primacy of Ireland. Talbot was hardly the man to let such a claim go unanswered. Many times in the past I have avoided every occasion of dispute with you, and whenever it was impossible to avoid such occasions and meetings, I pretended not to advert to the assumption you rashly took upon yourself with regard to the primacy. Now I am given this book, written by you, published here in Dublin, in which you publicly endeavour to prove that the primacy is due to you. It simply contains my proofs. When we had agreed... Nay, we had been urged by the apostolic see to be silent on this matter until it had reached a decision. The publication of this book is not meant to renew the controversy. It merely contains the proofs which I have sent to Rome. I will abide by their decision. And what am I supposed to do? Being assailed by this public document, am I to keep silent? And if I do, what will my clergy and my people think of me? Dr. Talbot... You remind me of a Monsignor in Rome who could not in all Italy find a servant to suit him. The Florentine was too talkative, the Milanese was giddy, the Romanese was stupid, the Neapolitan was quick with his fingers, the Roman was too sad. And so it is with you. 
everything I do will displease you. I'm displeased only when you act in a rash manner. If I had taken your advice, I would have called no synods, passed no laws, introduced no reforms. And what are the schools you railed against? I now have two schools, both flourishing, where 150 boys receive schooling and a further 25 ecclesiastics reside. I still fear they will be short-lived in such a place as Drogheda. You forget that many Protestants attend these schools who belong to the principal families, and these families now defend us. Neither you nor they can defend them against Parliament. Then the Viceroy will protect us. The Viceroy will protect himself, but he will make use of you, as he did when you brought back those Tories. They were pardoned and transported in safety to France. It is not the work of a bishop to proceed in the manner of an armed soldier. I undertook it for everyone's good. Nearly all the Catholic families, as well as Protestant in the province, were persecuted and and nearly ruined because of them. And now the government can hold clerics responsible for the presence of Tories in their areas. In addition, you refused to assist the sending of my brother Richard to London as agent for the dispossessed Catholic nobleman, even though you promised to subscribe ten pounds. On reflection, I changed my mind. You mean you were advised... There are no noblemen, with the exception of my Lord Ivy in my province, who seeks a return to their land. In addition, when Parliament last year appointed a committee to inquire into the growth of popery in Ireland, they referred by name to me, but not to you. Why were you not named then? I was named. Yes, but your name was removed before it reached the Lords. I will tell you who removed your name. Ormond. He is as much an enemy of mine, Dr. Talbot. You, you must think that all the affairs of these kingdoms revolve about your person... And so the controversy continued to the great discomfort of other bishops, such as Bishop Brennan of Waterford. These dissensions are daily increasing and have arrived at such a pitch that I do not know how to quiet them. I have not omitted to exhort them both to peace, and for the most part I received good promises, though occasionally I came in for some slight mortification. Both one and the other are touchy and of hot disposition, and would, in my opinion, be displeased to receive an admonition from an inferior bishop. However, the Bishop of Killaloe, Maloney, did manage to bring them together, as Plunkett himself reported to the Internuncio. Through the efforts of the Bishop of Killaloe, a perfect reconciliation has been established between the Archbishop of Dublin and myself. Dr Talbot, with his brothers and his nephews, entertained me to dinner. In the evening... They, in turn, came to visit my friends, a thing which hasn't happened within the last 12 months. Notwithstanding this, owing to the efforts of the new Viceroy, Essex, the reconciliation did not last very long. Writing to Ormond, Essex explained how he had managed to achieve this. I soon found that if this peace proceeded, I should have no intelligence as to any of their practices and believing it to be one of the most important things I could do for His Majesty's service, either to keep these men divided, or, if they were united, to break them up again, I have made use of some of their friars to set up factions against them. But before the dispute could develop again, the English Parliament acted against what had termed the increase of popery in Ireland, and, of course, Peter Talbot was singled out for special mention. That the titular Popish archbishops, vicar-generals, and all other here exercising ecclesiastical jurisdiction by the Pope's authority, 
and in particular Peter Talbot, pretended Archbishop of Dublin, may be commanded by proclamation forthwith to depart out of Ireland. Another part of the address demanded the dismissal of Richard Talbot, who, as agent of the Roman Catholic nobleman, was still trying to obtain lands for the dispossessed. Peter Talbot was warned in advance by friends in London of the Parliament's moves, and with supreme logic or illogic went over to London, from where he was advised to go to Paris for a while. He arrived in Paris, inevitably bringing letters with him, this time letters of commendation to Louis XIV, both from Charles and James. Even in Paris, he still couldn't stay out of the limelight. There he met up with Dr. John Sargent, a well-known English priest who also had just fled from England. Sargent had written many books on doctrinal matters, and Talbot wrote to the Internunzio, seeking a pension for him and praising him in glowing terms. However, having read some of the books, he found in them errors of doctrine. Sargent had an almost pathological hatred for the Jesuits, and they in turn supported, or perhaps prompted, Talbot, who accused Sargent of heresy. Now the exiled clergy of Paris were divided into two camps. Talbot was supported by the Jesuits, Benedictines and some secular priests. Sargent in turn was supported by the majority of the secular English clergy, as well as Barclay, the head of the Scots College. Also among his supporters, he named the Archbishop of Armagh, who of course was still in Ireland. There were several meetings between the disputants, one of which was recalled by Sargent, a meeting between Talbot, Barclay and the chief of censurers, no less. At these words, the chief of censurers rated Talbot soundly. Domine, you have dealt craftily with me and with artifice, so that I suspect that all this business springs from pique. Mr. Barclay then told him, Domine rem actu tetigisti. Sir, you are in the right of it. Whereupon, Talbot, rising up in great heat, with a face ingrained in anger, thundered out, Mentiris, Barclay! Mentiris impudentissime! You lie, Barclay! You lie most impudently! I know what you are! That is, a heretic, and a favourer of heretics! But I shall be even with you! This dispute might have been long since forgotten, were it not for the terrible consequences, namely Sargent's involvement a few years later in the Popish plot. It had been commonly held that the chief movers of the plot were Titus Oates and Bedloe, prompted by Shaftesbury. Owing to the researches of the British historian Malcolm Hay in the 30s, the significant role played by Sargent was uncovered. An attempt was made to hush up the dispute which was causing great scandal in Paris, but Talbot was not to be silenced. He continued to write against Sargent, three of whose propositions were condemned. He also at this time wrote another book called The Friar Disciplined, in which he defended himself against the accusations of Peter Walsh. Ironically, he dedicated the book to Ormond, whom he admirably damned with faint praise. But I assure you, Peter Walsh, I honour and love my Lord Duke of Ormond and his family much more than you do. There is not anyone who considers his descent and how his interest cannot be separated from that of the Crown who will entertain the least suspicion against his loyalty. Some indeed admire how so wise a man should think it the interests of the crown to permit those who fought for it to be destroyed and disinherited and admire his want of memory in not remembering so many meriting men 
who lost all for the king. But seeing his nearest relatives complain that they also are forgot, we must not accuse him of anything but want of memory. In yet another book, probably his least impressive, he defended the right of Dublin to the primacy against the book of Oliver Plunkett and asked Rome to decide. It was not until the beginning of the next century that this dispute was finally settled. In 1676, Sargent returned to England, his reputation somewhat tarnished with the idea of publishing a book against Talbot. He became involved with a group called the Black Clovis, a Catholic party whose aim was a modified allegiance to Rome and the expulsion of all Jesuits from England. Sargent summed up all Jesuits by claiming that they would not live but where there was warm housekeeping or with some rich widow. Now he was determined to revenge himself both on them and on Talbot. The political climate helped him in this venture. James, Duke of York, had declared himself to be a Roman Catholic. Despite having innumerable illegitimate children, Charles had no heir, so James' conversion was greeted by dismay, especially in Parliament. James' second marriage had been to the Catholic Mary of Medina, so it looked like the beginning of another Catholic succession. Charles was again negotiating with Louis XIV, and again Talbot managed to be in the thick of things, and arrived in London from Paris early in 1677 with, of course, the inevitable secret letters from Louis to Charles. His health now began to fail, and having remained for a month in London, he went to stay with her Sir Henry Poole in Cheshire. Talbot was being treated by a Dr Fogarty, an Irishman who had a good practice in London. One day, Fogarty was approached by some unknown men and handed a letter addressed to Sir Henry Poole, which referred to Talbot's presence in his house. I pray you tell that make-hate you entertain in your house that if he proceeds in spreading aspersions under the name of Lominus or any other name, we are three here out of his reach and have letters written in his own hand to a prime Jesuit in France, which contain treason against His Majesty the King of England. We three are sworn to give our faith to one another, to prosecute that make-hate, neither shall he know by whom he is hurt. If he will be quiet, he is safe. I wish you to be safe in harbouring so turbulent and obnoxious a make-hate. Talbot who was just on the point of publishing a book against Sargent, was not put off by this blackmail letter. Instead, he published the text in an appendix to the book, an action which was to save him from execution, as events proved. Fearing for the safety of his host more than for himself, he left for Ireland a few weeks later and stayed at his brother's home in Luttrellstown. He was still suffering from gallstones and from an ulcer in the bladder and became so infirm that he could not leave the house. Three months later, in London, Titus Oates laid before the Privy Council the details of a fictitious plot in which he claimed that the Jesuits planned to murder both the King and Ormond. The infamous Popish plot had begun. Oates also named Talbot as one of the chief conspirators, probably at the prompting of Sargent, who remained largely behind the scenes. And in Parliament, Shaftesbury and his country party made use of Oates and his plot to embarrass the King and James. Shaftesbury, probably the first political propagandist, inflamed feeling by organising huge Pope-burning processions and printed masses of tracts and pamphlets to spread the fear of a Jesuit-inspired invasion throughout the land. And Titus Oates 
relished in his newfound role. My friends, I shall be brief, but only allow me to inform you as to why the Pope should be burned. We must burn the Pope because he is a serpent-like dog. He is crafty and subtle and covetous, and he is an old blind cuckold and cannot well see, nor ever did, nor ever shall, as long as he continues in his devilish superstition and idolatry. Singing, drinking, and women's company would be his delight. It is very well known that he hath the disease called the Venus disease, or that which is found in the Venus gardens for his several and manifold whoredoms. And as for the Jesuits, they have come amongst you bringing pardons from the Pope for all those who will murder Protestants. Moreover, rewards will be given to all who do ravish Protestant wives and daughters. Among the first victims were five Jesuits, the Duke of York's secretary Coleman and Talbot's physician, Dr. Fogarty. He was denounced as a conspirator by Titus Oates and died in Newgate Prison in mysterious circumstances. Acting at orders from England, Ormond arrested Talbot. He was imprisoned in Dublin Castle, but the only paper of significance found in him was Sargent's blackmail letter, which he had carefully kept. This letter was sent by Ormond to London. He is also a traitor who conceals treason, and yet these men kept the pretended treason from the date of their letter, May 12th, until October. It should, of course, have been a godsend to those who were promoting the plot, and if it had been used... Talbot surely would have been executed. But the letter was suppressed as it incriminated the writers also. It would have been disastrous to allow Talbot to speak in his own defence, and he was never brought to trial. His health continued to fail, and having spent a year in prison, he petitioned Ormond to release him. The physicians who attended him advised this, otherwise they said he would die, and Sir Patrick Dunn, who examined him on behalf of the government, agreed with this. But Ormond now too was under pressure. He had been made Viceroy again by Charles to hold Ireland for him against Shaftesbury's faction. Charges were made in England that Ormond was a secret Catholic, that any move to oust him was resisted by Charles, and Ormond was not going to jeopardise his position by releasing Talbot. Meanwhile, Oliver Plunkett was arrested and put in a room adjoining Talbot. Now the question of the primacy seemed very irrelevant, and they became reconciled. After another year, Talbot was allowed out briefly to the house of Charles Thompson for baths and treatment. But he was soon back in prison and was kept in close confinement. And in London, Charles, who was fighting for his own survival as king, could or would do nothing to help. In June 1680, he almost died, and it is reported that Oliver Plunkett forced his way past the guards to absolve him. At the beginning of November... Plunkett was sent to London to stand trial, and twelve days later, still in solitary confinement, Peter Talbot died. Six months later, Oliver Plunkett, the last victim of the Popish plot, and the man who, in a sense, took Talbot's place, 
was executed at Tyburn. So the remarkable life of Peter Talbot came to a sad end. Looking back at his life, one sometimes sees in him the dreaming qualities of Don Quixote, a tragic-comic figure, jousting with the windmills, a man whose sense of self-importance and over-optimism often bore little relation to reality. But the mischievous priest had other qualities, loyalty, steadfastness and integrity. Like many others down through the years who followed the cause of the stewards, he had very little to show for his life's work. Peter Talbot has been one of the most neglected figures of the Restoration period. While biographies of Oliver Plunkett abound, he is still awaiting his first. There may have been, in the past, many controversial archbishops of Dublin, but certainly there has been none more colourful than Peter Talbot.